Please rise. Court is now in session. Justice Facts dissects the most notorious criminal cases making news today. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. We have been up close and personal with serial killers, mass murderers, sexual predators, and terrorists. You name it, and we've seen it. From the crime scene, to the courtroom, to prison, even the death chamber. We take you behind the scenes into the dark drama surrounding these cases from a perspective that you would never experience on your own. Please be advised that some editions may contain graphic descriptions of violent crime. Here's our latest edition of Justice Facts. This episode of Justice Facts focuses on a case of money, power, and sex. The federal case against Ghislaine Maxwell, the girlfriend of the late Jeffrey Epstein, and his alleged accomplice in procuring underage girls for sex. 66-year-old Epstein took those secrets to his grave when he hung himself in a cell while awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges in August of 2019. Ghislaine Maxwell disappeared afterward. FBI agents raided a million-dollar mansion in Bedford, New Hampshire, where they arrested the fugitive in July of 2020. It was a 156-acre estate acquired seven months earlier in an all-cash purchase by a limited liability company named Granite Realty that hid the buyer's identity. The FBI found three passports and identified 15 bank accounts bulging with more than $20 million linked to Maxwell. She is being held without bail due to an extreme risk of flight. 58-year-old Maxwell faces a six-count federal indictment. It accuses her of helping Epstein recruit, groom, and sexually abuse young girls, including a 14-year-old, between 1994 and 1997. She has pleaded not guilty. Now joining me is former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston, and Bill is going to break down the indictment. How tough a case is this for the federal prosecutors? The way the indictment is laid out, if those facts are established by witnesses, I don't think it's that tough. Uh, of course, who knows, and who knows what a jury would do. The indictment gives a lengthy background in which it describes the, the victims, obviously not naming them, but it describes the victims. It describes how the relationship started it describes the what's termed the grooming process, that is making the girls comfortable in a situation so that they'll ultimately do things they shouldn't do. Uh, at any rate, the factual background, if you know, if there are witnesses to all this that can establish it, and most of it would come from the victims, it seems to be a, a serious case that has good facts behind it. Why do you think it took so long for the FBI to find her? The life uh, that these folks were, by that I mean Epstein and Maxwell, were living for, I'd say, the last 20 years was always veiled uh, with a dark veil. They had a number of different places they went. Uh, the, the indictment actually has photographs of the primary establishments. They flew on private aircraft. So 
everything was secret and it was hidden and it was a bit of a shell game as to where they were, how they got there, who they were with. And so not surprisingly, when it came time to finding her, she was beneath another acorn shell. Well, so put yourself in the place of that federal prosecutor. How would Bill Johnston have gone after them as fugitives? What would you have told the agents? Where would you, would you have told them to try to start? Follow the money. You know, it seems like in these situations, even though there are many pedophiles out there, I've never heard of one or a pair of them that have the financial resources these, these two had. And so if you can look, although, as you mentioned in the opening, there's corporations that hide the true ownership, there's anonymous buyers and this sort of thing. If you can get any sort of starting point, you can backtrack financially into what entity acquired what, and then you go to the Secretary of State in the state and you find out who formed the corporation, who's the registered agent of the corporation and so forth. So I would say follow the money. That's probably what they did. So they would uh, subpoena bank records to follow the money trail. Bank records are protected uh, by federal laws. They're, they're private. But a federal grand jury can get past anything. Uh, their laws uh, and their power supersedes most uh, protections. So, yes, you can use sometimes administrative subpoenas and sometimes grand jury subpoenas to learn about bank records and uh, financing records as to where money came from and so forth. That's probably what happened. Well, these accusations cover a time period of 94 through 97. Is that problematic for a prosecution that it's so long ago? Or But you do, you know, the women are now adults. Well, it's tough because prosecutors usually say cases don't get better with time. That's, that's, the, that's true in a sex case involving children. They get a little better with time at a point because the folks are able with maturity and, and age to tell a story better, to recount it sometimes better, and to be more articulate. Uh, I've watched cases involving very young children, and you know, it's so tough for a kid to get on the witness stand and to handle the pressure of that. It's so awkward. It's so public. So when someone is older, whether that means they're 18 or 30, they're going to have the, the ability to communicate better. So that's good. But you get a point at which it's so far away that memories are easily tested by a defense attorney cross-examining that person because it's, you know, just have the jurors sit in their situation and say, what happened to you 27 years ago? That's tough. You know, the indictment refers to grooming uh, nine times in an 18-page indictment. And, you know, I did a number of investigative reports inside the prison system series about uh, sexual predators of children. And this thing, grooming, I heard it directly uh, interviewing these criminals where they talked about it. So they're very sophisticated. They, uh, uh, you know, I, I interviewed men that actually, quote, groomed everyone around a single mom and just, and actually married her to get at her, her boys. Um I've seen them do it as scout leaders and other positions of authority. They groom everybody, and they have this image of helping. And, and Now, in this case, 
it sounds like you got some sophistication and money behind it. You have two things here that you don't normally have. You, you have a lot of money so that among the things that's alleged in the indictment is they would take the young ladies shopping, take them to movies, and entertain them so that it seemed like, you know, it's just natural. You're having fun. You're, you're doing things you want to do, but you may not have the money to do, particularly the shopping if they went to expensive places. The other thing that is unique about this case, which made it so um, insidious, and maybe a better term than that, but something like that, is that uh, you had a female to help groom. The biggest problem that uh, the impediment that male pedophiles have in getting young ladies is to, there's a natural inhibition there. Um, and, you know, young ladies are taught not to trust some stranger old man, you know, stranger danger, run away. When you introduce a woman into the situation and the woman is the first contact or the sort of the lead contact in it, there's an element of trust that quickly develops. So a lot of folks that have commented about this case are as angry with this defendant as they were with Epstein because she was the bridge of trust, uh, as it's alleged here. You know, a victim came out just a few days ago and, and uh, said that she is the real monster. The facts will, will tell. If these young women testify that they would have never even thought about this behavior or this, um, uh, I guess, succumbing to this, mm -hmm. uh, the will of these folks without Ms. Maxwell, yeah. if they testify to that, then, then the jury may find that and the judge may too because, yeah, if, if, if they needed her, that is, Epstein needed or had to have her, had to have her do the grooming, had to have her make the connections and be that bridge of trust. Yeah, that could be pretty tough on her because, uh, but for her, it may never happened. Well, the indictment also talks about that Maxwell would allegedly in inquire about their home life and their personal life. Now, this is something I've seen in my reporting. Uh, usually, if they can find a problem in the home, um, family dysfunction, these kinds of things, they re they really know how to understand it. You know, I did an interview with a oh a serial molester in prison, and uh, as we're doing the interview, he he talked about a look of yearning that he had this he could see a look the look in a child's eyes of things aren't well at home and all, and then he reaches under his bunk and pulls out this this homemade catalog where he's been clipping pictures out of magazines and everything else and photographs of that look and starts, it, it was sort of a how to recognize a vulnerable child. And the FBI uses it today at Quantico. I mean, everyone was stunned, but he got to get carried away with himself and suddenly reveal this, this trove of secrets. But, um, from your prosecutorial experience, I mean, how, how does that come into play when there's problems at home as well? Pedophiles almost always look for a vulnerable victim. You and I, in, in our discussions about a serial killer, I um, 
often put him in the animal kingdom, and I, I think that's where he belonged. Sure. But these perpetrators, these predators, uh, are in the animal kingdom too. And they are a, a leopard looking at a herd of gazelle, as a play on words here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they see the one that's small, the one that tends to stray a little from the herd, the one whose mother does not protect as well. And that's the one they go after. And so there's something, you know, maybe we could do a piece sometime, not that either one of us are psychiatrists or psychologists, but there is something parallel to the animal kingdom about serial killers and pedophiles. There's something about their nature and their their um, their look that is that is that predator, that carnivore that is looking over a herd trying to find their right victim. Why? They don't want a tough kill. They want an easy kill. They want someone that they can grab from the herd, that the herd won't maybe miss as mm-hmm, much, mm-hmm. that the mother animal didn't protect as well, or that for whatever reason, we're just having, in a human situation, just having trouble. Well, and of course, Epstein couldn't do the stalking. And I'm. It, it's interesting that a woman is allegedly was also his girlfriend that she's she's doing the stalking and I you know I saw this in a case here in Dallas there was a oh about a year ago a massage parlor here in Dallas it was a front for prostitution that was busted at, by the feds and mainly on money laundering is what they went after but it was interesting in those indictments that the two male owners that operated the place used women uh, to solicit models on Craigslist and the models were usually women, drug problems, money problems, what have you. But they didn't know that the modeling was actually going to be prostitution, but it was, it would be a female that reeled them in and even a female booking doing all the booking. That's that bridge of trust again, which Maxwell allegedly played that role here. And then that goes back to a, the relationship between a mother and child or a, an older female and a younger female. That is a natural trust relationship. Um, you know, even in a herd of cows, one mama cow mm-hmm. will babysit other cows' calves. Right. Uh, and you see it in other, in other animals as well. But there's a natural female-to-female relationship of trust. And so when a younger person is approached by a female, older female, whether they're seeing them as a mother figure or there's just some other method of trust or a nature of trust there. And so that's why if someone like Epstein can get a female, which he allegedly did here, to be that bridge, your success rate you know, quadruples. Well, also, you know, there are allegations that they were also procuring these underage girls for a who's who of men, rich and powerful. Uh, they would fly on a, his plane, which was nicknamed uh, the Lolita. That in itself should say plenty. Any man <laughs> getting on a plane named right. Lolita and their young girls on, come on, you know, it's pretty clear what's going on. Uh, 
To me, as the reporter, what I'm waiting for is to see, is she going to flip? Is is she going to try to avoid prison time? You know, she's led this rich lifestyle. Prison is, it's tough. Um, Do you think they're trying to make that happen? Is it let's make a deal time with the prosecutors? Who starts that conversation? To look at the uh, indictment, many of the counts are 15-year exposure counts, Um, perhaps one or two 10-year counts, some 15-year counts. And in federal prison, that's real time. In other words, there's no substantial good time. There's no parole. So a 15-year sentence in federal prison might mean 13 and a half years, 12 years, 14 years. So someone under indictment as she is with this exposure would be hot if, unless she thinks she can be found not guilty by a jury, would be highly motivated to do something about that exposure, that penitentiary exposure. Sometimes, uh, normally, a a good lawyer will say to the prosecutor at some point, what do you want? What do you want out of this? And they say, well, we want her to plead guilty. Well, that's, of course you do. Of course you do. You want your guilty finding, but what do you need out of this? What do you mean? How many years do you need to be happy with this case? And if the prosecutor says, I don't know, you know, let's leave it to the judge, or let's say eight or ten years, and there is not plea bargaining like we think of in state court, in, in federal court, but there is charge bargaining. So they can agree to certain things. And in certain districts, including the Southern District of New York where this is brought, you can propose particular sentences to the judge, and he can approve those. So uh, a judge, <clears throat> on this case, if they're if it's recommended to the judge uh, six or seven years instead of 15 or whatever, uh, he or she, the judge, uh, may go with that. How does that happen then? So as the prosecutors used to say, well, I'm not going to you know, just – buy a pig and a poke. I don't know the words. I'm not going to just accept that she's going to tell the truth if she wants to debrief. We'll do a proffer, they call it, a proffer. What does that mean? Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office typically would send a letter to the defense attorney and say, I understand your client wants to talk with an idea toward earning a reduction in sentence, and I'll talk about another way to do that in a minute. And if that's what they want, then the prosecutor will say, if your client does an initial debriefing and we think she's truthful, then we'll look at plea bargaining. So there is a, an initial uh, parlay or initial discussion uh, to get a proffer that is an early uh, pitch of information. If, that, if it goes to that point, the FBI or whoever's working this would sit down with her uh, and they would ask her many, many questions, most of which they know the answer to, to see if she'll be truthful. And then some, obviously, they don't know, to know, is this worth it? Um, <clears throat> I've had a couple of cases through the years where we think someone has great information. They don't. And it, it turns out it just wasn't worth it. We would tell the lawyer, they have nothing we need. But you have to judge that. So if there's something substantial, um, that they have to offer and the proffer, that is that initial discussion, seems truthful, you go from there. And there are other things they can earn. We can talk about 5K, which is a sentencing reduction under the guidelines. 
Rule 35, which is a post-sentencing reduction. So there are other methods <clears throat> where someone can get a reduction of their sentence, even beyond the plea bargain. It takes truthful cooperation, though. Do you think this is going on now that uh, let's make a deal has been in play? I would be surprised if that discussion hasn't been had because, again, the exposure is so great. And in federal court, although the, the COVID virus has affected some of the time frames, as a general rule, once someone's indicted, their case is set within about two and a half months. So there's some urgency to get something done. So <clears throat> I would expect something to happen like that. So I think one sign of that may have been her attorney. She was allowed to meet with her attorney in person in this COVID epidemic, and nobody else has been able to do that. So it made me wonder, okay, are these talks in play? A reasonable attorney would at least yeah. engage into that. Yeah. So with so many high-profile figures uh, being alleged to be involved in this, like Prince Andrew, and again, it's alleged – what are you as a prosecutor thinking? Uh, big, you, want to, you want the bigger fish? Well, you always want to know the whole story. <clears throat> and if the story you have thus far is a chapter, but you know there's more chapters, you know it because of the circumstances, you know it because of some maybe uncorroborated mm -hmm. information you can pursue. You want the whole thing. You know, we used to do in our drug cases when we would have someone dealing a kilo of cocaine. Well, that's bad and you shouldn't do that, but I want to know where the half ton is, where the stash house is mm -hmm. near the border. And so you always want to work your way up. It's it's not just because prosecutors, you know, like to do something that yes. gets them a big name or a big fish. It's also just that's really your job. Your job is to to look at the facts and see where the facts broaden the case mm -hmm. so that you get the whole story instead of a, a little uh, back page. Well, it, it seems to me with the, these allegations that she's also a witness. We could see her someday under a plea deal testify, sitting and testifying. It would be required. So any plea bargain agreement with her, if she ever entered, entered into one, would require her to truthfully testify both at grand juries and at trials. And so she would be under an obligation to truthfully testify once that plea bargain agreement was signed, if she at any point refused to do so, or if she were caught not being truthful along the way, the plea bargain agreement can be ripped up. Well, and then she's going to be the one source since he's deceased for the date, time, place, who, where, how many. Well, and so many jurisdictions are probably interested in this. Again, the indictment actually shows a home in Manhattan, a home in Florida, the ranch in New Mexico. She was the one it's alleged here, that was involved in trips to all those different places. Now, supposedly, there are overseas trips as well. We don't, don't know that. Um, but when you fly in a private jet, your, the scrutiny you undergo with customs and overseas uh, customs is just not the same. And you can get, get away with a little more because it's private. You go to a different part of the airport and all that. And she would know that if, if she were there. She would know that, and she would have been old enough. In other words, she mm -hmm. wouldn't have been 14. She was old enough to know where they, where they went, with whom. And it may not be a flight manifest that they're looking for because it's private, but it could be a customs record, an immigration record, 
It could be um, an airport record of uh, tickets held that may still exist, and she could help them with that. And the prosecution is going to need this for corroboration of her story. They will. They you really, even with someone like, for instance, if she knows the whole truth and told it, even though she might be able to state it with great particularity, you ha- have to try to get records, as one of my prosecutors used to say, figures don't lie. So you want something with a date, a time, a name, that's a cold record that corroborates and proves true what she says. Will she be a problem witness and then in that some high-profile man will say she's making it up, look at her past? You'd expect that. Yeah. Anytime you have a cooperating witness in any case, whether it's a murder case or a drug case or something like this, the the underlying cross-examination is you're just here to save yourself. Yes. And you're lying. That's why you want to corroborate it as much as you can with documents. And I'm sure the United States is doing that in all these jurisdictions uh, about whatever it is they're looking into. And again, you know, this is an allegation against her in the indictment mm-hmm. right now. She's not pled guilty. She's not been found guilty. Uh, we're, we're sort of looking with our experiences to how this track may right. go. Uh, but, uh, we'll see. I can tell you from the trials I've covered of sexual predators, they're dead in front of a jury. I mean, I've seen some roll the dice and I, I would be sitting there <laughs> thinking you do, <laughs> you, you should have made a deal because they're going to drop the hammer. These, these cases are not typically tried to juries. And it's for that reason. Yes. Uh, as much as a defense attorney might try to carefully select a jury that would not be as judgmental or not be as harsh or not be as, uh, oh, angry <laughs> during, the, during the trial and what they hear, it's human nature on just an average set of yes. American folks. It's human nature to be protective of kids. Yes. And that comes out in the trial usually. Oh, and I've seen as the facts are un- unveiled, you can see it on the jurors' faces. I mean, I've seen cases where it's true. members of the jury were tearing up. I have to. Yeah. Uh, where do you think this goes next? Well, let, let me get to this. So you're going to have the conspiracy theorist come out because everybody, many, many people believe that Epstein was murdered because of all these high-profile uh, men that were allegedly involved. Um I think they've been expecting her to end up dead. Uh, in a case like this where there are powerful, high-profile people, is there a risk to their safety? There is a, a risk, of course, uh, because from, from themselves, they don't may, the person may not want to endure uh, their own trial. They may not want to endure the uh, ex- exposure, the scrutiny, the embarrassment of being that person that's the witness yeah. against others. So they might hurt themselves, and I'm sure they're doubling down, hopefully, on their effort to, to keep her safe. And there is some some risk that someone from the outside would try to do something to a witness like that. It happens from time to time, more so in organized crime, drug mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm. where a witness is in great danger. But with her being incarcerated, I would think she's going to be healthy enough to come testify yeah. if she wants to do that. What sign should our listeners look for that will indicate perhaps there's a she's about to spill the beans on everybody? If there is no jury trial setting, uh, 
put on the calendar fairly soon, let's say late in the fall. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there are, perhaps are agreed resets, agreed continuances, and then ultimately something called a rearrangement set. Because a rearrangement is normally when someone pleads guilty in federal court. So you'd look for the type of settings in court and the lack of contentiousness back and forth regarding an upcoming jury trial. Okay, there it is for our listeners. That's what we're going to be listening for on Justice Facts. When we see that happen or developments, we'll, we'll devote more episodes to it in the future as well as episodes about Bill's past cases, my past cases. Uh, also, I want to encourage you to go listen to True Crime Reporter. It features Bill and his role in bringing the worst sadistic sexual serial killer in the history of Texas to justice, getting him off the streets after he'd been on a long-time murder spree. So, Justice Facts and True Crime Reporter, you can download them on your favorite podcast apps, and we're going to be here trying to talk to you weekly about those big, trending national cases to give you our perspective and background on what's going on. Current events in true crime, maybe. There and you that go. seems like something that uh, a lot of people talk about, but maybe our experience will help put some uh, meat on the bones. There. As we say, we've seen it all from, uh, from the fugitive hunts to inside prison to in the courtroom to even on uh, Texas death row. That's right. All right. Thank you very much. That's Justice Facts. And look for us on True Crime Reporter. Thanks. Justice Facts is co-hosted by Robert Riggs and Bill Johnston. Associate producer, Siler Burr. Original music by Blair King. Social media producer, Grace Woodward. Publicity, Tim Livingston, PR. Graphics, Brian David Kerr Designs. Additional music by Stan Woodward. Justice Facts is a copyrighted production produced by True Crime Reporter.